0: Okay, welcome to the State of Venezuela podcast, the only podcast in English focused on all matters related to Venezuela. My name is Rafael and I want to thank you for tuning in to the very first episode. I'm really excited to be making this idea finally come to life. This has been a long time coming for me personally and frankly long overdue for Venezuela. What's been happening in the country over the past year and really over the past decade has been grossly underreported by English news outlets. This state of affairs is more so the result of a backstory so complex that it deserves the sort of breakdown that I will do my very best to provide to you all in English. Joining me today is an independent journalist and photographer based in Colombia. He's worked for Al Jazeera, The New Humanitarian, and other organizations in Latin America. He's also the head of Muros Invisibles, or Invisible Walls in English a journalistic organization focused on Latin America that works to give a voice to people who are generally underrepresented in the nations in which they reside. He's currently focused on the Venezuelan crisis, specifically from the perspective of the Venezuelans themselves, and I'm very much looking forward to hearing him share his story with you all. So without further ado, Joshua Collins, welcome to the State of Venezuela podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me,
0: Rafael. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Very glad to have you on. So, I'd like to start off by having our listeners hear a little bit more about your background. Um, Where is it that you're from originally?
1: Um, The United States. I was born in Texas, although most of my life I lived in
0: New York. Oh, okay. Okay. So, how did you uh, end up making your way to Colombia?
1: Originally, I was just looking for a change. I had been working on a legal marijuana farm in Colorado and the isolation of such a rural life kind of made me want to try to start something fresh. So I came down to Columbia. Originally, that was three years ago. That would have been 2017. Um, originally, I was planning on looking into maybe starting a small business or something. But I sort of fell into journalism by accident by um, becoming really obsessed and and kind of in love with the issue of Venezuelan immigration specifically is kind of how I stumbled onto this.
0: Yeah, tell me a little bit more about uh, Muros Invisibles. How did you come up with the name? Uh, so I ended up in Cucuta as part of this
1: attempt to become a jurist, journalist because in 2017, at least in English language media, the story of the Venezuelan immigration was grossly underreported. Mm. It was before the story became kind of sexy in 2019 uh, with Guaido and the opposition and the efforts of the United States. And at the time, um, outside of Colombia, it wasn't really a story that was well reported in international media at all. And just being on the border and talking to the millions of people that were fleeing, I was like, this is an incredible story that almost no one is talking about. So that's kind of how I got interested in the issue originally.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it continues like we were talking about a little bit before we started recording. It continues to be grossly underrepresented despite the fact that now the country is experiencing the second largest refugee crisis in the world. I think a million shy from Syria. And if those numbers continue to escalate, which at the pace we're seeing now shows no sign of slowing down, it'll outpace Syria and become the largest exodus in modern history.
1: Yeah, it's the largest um international movement of people in South American history. Although the internal displacements within Colombia kind of rival that from the 90s during the height of the drug on, the war on drugs. Um but the situation is a little complicated now because lockdowns in both Colombia and Venezuela have made transit next to impossible. Um, only around 300 people are allowed to cross the border for humanitarian reasons a few times a week. And there's actually um, an accumulation of people in what are effectively quarantine camps, like sort of open air uh, quarantine areas on both sides of the border right now. So for now, the immigration is kind of on pause. We'll see what, what Latin America looks like in a few months.
0: And correct me if I'm wrong, but as the figure show today, I understand that 80% of the displaced migrants that are coming out of Venezuela are staying in the region, but the vast majority are making their way to Colombia, correct? Um,
1: I think it's 80% go through Colombia. I want to say that there, the, last, the last estimate was almost 5 million people have fled according to the UN. That was from December of 2019. Um and the vast majority pass through Colombia because the other borders are inaccessible. It's really difficult. Brazil is ge- geographically sort of isolated. In order to get to the cent- the city centers or the more populated states from the Venezuelan border, you have to cross areas of really dense jungle where there aren't a lot of roads. Mm-hmm. So that's presented prevented Brazil from becoming a major destination. Also, there's language and cultural barriers that exist between Brazil and Colombia and Venezuela that don't exist between Colombia and Venezuela, which are really similar cultures that share a language.
0: And a lot of them are going into, uh, as you mentioned, Cucuta, correct?
1: Yep. That's one of the main entry points. I lived in Cucuta for about
0: two years. So I'm interested in hearing more about your interaction with some of the refugees that you came into contact with. And I think our listeners would benefit from hearing some of those stories too. Tell me about maybe some of the interactions you had. What were some of the common recurring themes that you've been hearing from refugees when they share their individual stories?
1: A lot of the people that are refugees, I think, are kind of misrepresented in uh, some fringe uh, English language media as being sort of like extreme right or something. The truth is that most of the people I talked to didn't have very strong or formulated opinions on govern governing. They were more interested in employment and food security, especially uh, towards the end of 2018, the beginning of 2019, things started to get a lot worse within Venezuela. And most of them were just trying to escape to find opportunities, economic opportunities. Some of them were, fleeing because they didn't trust a health system in Venezuela to give birth. Uh, some of them were desperately trying to find a way to send monies back to their families back in Venezuela, particularly children or grandparents. Uh, I'd say that really the only common theme
0: among all these people was desperation. Right. Absolutely. That that makes a lot of sense. Um, and you're right. It is a, a bit of a misconception for a lot of people who believe that it's strictly due to political reasons. But or most of them they're just looking for a way out and a way to survive. Absolutely. Apart from that though, what um what other misconceptions in your experience do you think that people have about the situation in Venezuela as a whole?
1: Uh, I think that there that there's been a, a really that's a complex question. It might take me a moment to answer. But um there's been a really strange reaction from US especially the left in regards to what's going on in Venezuela. And I think that we contribute a lot of that to just reflexive opposition to whatever Trump wants to do. Um, I've criticized Trump's policy in Venezuela considerably, but that doesn't mean that just because you oppose Trump, you have to support Maduro. And I think that there's been this kind of conflation there, particularly in in America. Um, I mean, less so in mainstream media and more so in sort of like fringe left uh, media where they try to portray all of Venezuela as this monolithic block that all thinks the same way. And it's a it's a really great way to totally misunderstand the situation. Uh, the truth is that there are a lot of problems with the opposition in Venezuela, but that doesn't change the fact that Venezuela is indisputably guilty of extremely grave human rights violations, such as extrajudicial assassinations, disappearances, torture, uh, arbitrary detainment of political dissidents, oppression of press. Uh, I think, for me, the biggest thing was when I when I arrived on the border, I come from a background that would be, by American standards, kind of far left, although in Latin America, it's more of a centrist. The politics are a bit different here. And I was expecting uh, something very, very different from what I found. I was expecting to find that, you know, this is the US's fault, it's sanctions, like, this is all horrible. All these, these are all lies about Maduro. But you know, I talked to literally thousands of people over 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 the course of three years, and as well as developed context with journalists within Venezuela, human rights organizations, and it's like these these are extremely confirmable facts that no one disputes outside of like a very small segment of sort of fringe media, and I think a lot of well-meaning people buy into these stories that are essentially uh, it's propaganda. And it's like, I think personally, it's it's possible to criticize both American policy and the human rights violations of Maduro, which is no longer a democracy. That's kind of an indisputable fact at this point.
0: Sure. Absolutely. I think that um, you touch on a very important point where the, the policy is questionable and that the... Maduro dictatorship is undeniably that they're not mutually exclusive. And you're very correct in saying that there are well-intentioned people who unfortunately do fall under that, really that logical fallacy, we can say. Um, I remember watching, for example, Tulsi Gabbard on the Joe Rogan Experienced and based on no research or interaction with anyone from Venezuela, summarized Venezuela as a regime change war. And it's not just her on the left, um, Ron Paul, who, so he was an inspiration for me growing up as a dissenting voice started to echo these exact same sentiments. And, um, as, as you correctly put it, it does a grave, a very grave disservice to those of us, those of us with direct life experience in this conflict. So I applaud you for actually doing your due diligence and finding out for yourself that that's actually, uh, not the case, but apart from those people who I think are, uh, maybe more well-intentioned and just don't want to do their homework, you have, um, and I've noticed you've talked about this in some of your writings, people who absolutely are not well-intentioned and actually are complicit in this, um, disinformation campaign, right?
1: Yeah, (laughs) especially, I think it was a bigger problem in January, in 2019, There are some unethical journalists who were basically amplifying the propaganda of the Venezuelan regime, and kind of capitalizing on a lot of this, you know, well-founded pushback within American politics against foreign intervention. I think a lot of it's based on Iraq and Afghanistan, where it's pretty indisputable those were foreign policy blunders that had catastrophic results, and they kind of use those those mistakes to push this idea that the State Department and all Western media are all in cahoots lying about what's going on in Venezuela, which when you say it out loud, it sounds like a conspiracy theory. It's 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 kind of funny, but they, especially in 2019, had a really big profile pushing disinformation, especially regarding Venezuela.
0: Are you familiar, Josh, with the, uh, the incident that occurred last, I believe it was last April or last May, in which one of these fringe organizations, Code Pink, actually infiltrated the embassy, the Venezuelan embassy in Washington?
1: I did. I I was walking from Cucuta to Bogota with some of the millions that were fleeing, uh, traveling with the group over about a week and a half while that was going on. So I found out about it immediately after arriving in Bogota, and I just thought it was this most surreal event I'd seen in a very long time. Uh, Yeah, I mean, they were, that was, I even wrote an article about that. I'll I'll, I'll send it to you after the uh, podcast. But yeah, I'm familiar. And I ended up actually being put in touch with a lot of people who were on the ground there while that was going on. People were reaching out to me and I was just confused because they were releasing this information that like there's no humanitarian crisis in Venezuela and no one's fleeing. I was literally walking on foot on an immigrant trail with thousands of people. It was just the most surreal experience to me. I was like, what is their agenda here? Why are they lying about this? I I, I seriously couldn't wrap my brain around it. Since then, I've come to learn a bit more about uh, outlets like Zone and Mint Press and some of the sort of fringe left sites that were pushing these ideas at the time and had some kind of public disputes with them.
0: Yeah. And some of those people actually have been invited into the presidential palace, which I, the evidence is out there. And for whatever reason, um, I don't know how they're able to su- successfully stake their claims, Or I don't know, in your experience, how do people normally react to the claims of these, you know, gray zone types, um, everybody else that makes up these uh, fringe organizations that basically strive to maintain this um, disinformation apparatus?
1: I think that's part of a larger cultural issue. And I don't want to digress too much, but there's been a big push by a lot of world leaders to distrust media sources, you know, the fake news thing. And I think also that unlike you or I, it's like Venezuela isn't a daily part of the global community's life. So you combine those two social issues together and you end up with a lot of sort of well-intentioned people who they go on Twitter, they search Venezuela and they're like, I don't trust BBC. Oh, well, who's this guy? This this Max Blumenthal character is, is saying some interesting stuff here about US foreign policy. And they don't really bother to fact check any of it. They just that's how disinformation propagates, right? And the issue is larger than just that fringe media group. I mean, that's a global issue. That's why I kind of don't want to digress too much into that issue. I know we have limited time here. I
0: would like to ask though, um, would you be able to give maybe an example of one of the more prominent instances of a disinformation campaign specifically on Venezuela so that our listeners can get sort of an idea of just how entrenched these figures and their backed organizations are in making sure that they're the leading voice in all things related to Venezuelan English that make our jobs, activists, journalists, and academics alike that much more difficult?
1: Sure. I mean, I can give you a pretty quick, easy one. In in the beginning of 2019, uh, before before, before the failed attempt to insert humanitarian aid into Venezuela that was organized by the United States, Colombia, Chile, and Brazil, um, the Grey Zone journalist Max Blumenthal and Anya Parampil specifically were in Caracas and they were filming videos of themselves in luxury malls, uh, basically trying to, to use this opportunity where this, this, this sheltered upper class was having some sort of semblance of a normal life uh, but the problem was at the time, the, the monthly minimum wage in Venezuela was $5 a month. And they released this this these series of videos, there's like a dozen of them, where they're claiming that and in, in opposition neighborhoods, they're interviewing people, and they're claiming that Maduro, Maduro was wildly popular. They're claiming that there's no economic crisis, there's no shortage of goods. And I didn't see these videos until a few months later, and they directly contradict my experience on the border. I was watching a state collapse before my eyes. But as, as we started off the podcast by saying, like at the time, before the political crisis really reached its height, there wasn't a lot of English language coverage of what was going on in Venezuela. Now, these organizations were hyped by Telesur, which is the state-controlled media arm of the Venezuelan governments. Um, so they got a huge, a huge magnification in Latin American news. And then that was ended up being hyped by RT, the state-owned Russian media company. So you had this huge, almost global push for these ideas, they were just patently false. It was a, a a really dishonest framing of the situation. It's like, yes, I'm sure that in the richest areas of Caracas, life was pretty normal at the time, but that doesn't represent the other 99.9% of the country. And it was portrayed that way. And to me, that was really frustrating. They were claiming that immigrants that I knew and migrants and, and refugees, I don't think it's wrong to use that term. They're, mm-hmm. they're, there's no active war in Venezuela, but the level of conflict is high enough to classify these people as refugees, according to the UN um we're saying that they didn't exist and these are people that i was i was physically interacting with that i had formed friendships with and i had a really a really negative reaction to them trying to do this and i honestly honestly don't understand their motives unless it was attention seeking or they were being paid i can't confirm that but it just makes me wonder
0: i think it has to be at this point because uh, when you look at the numbers it makes no sense to Try and confirm this notion that five million people decided to go on a five-year vacation. Right. And even when I, I go on their Twitter every now and then, and one of the most frustrating parts about these um, these gray t- these gray zone types, like you mentioned, the Anya Pombrills of the of the world, the Ben Norton's, the Max Blumenthal's, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've noticed this, Josh, but they never never actively respond to their critics.
1: Respond, they respond with, with threats and attacks, and I've I've seen them. Uh, literally lie about colleagues then put their lives in danger with these lies. they they just dis, they discredit people. they're They're known for frivolous lawsuits. They print articles that have absolutely no basis in fact attacking their critics. They never respond to questions about policy. it's It's always direct personal attacks. It's how they deal with critics
0: absolutely, because from from what I gather, and as you correctly assessed, they really don't have anything of substance to proffer. Would you say that's the greatest challenge that you have with your specific role right now?
1: No, I don't think that's the greatest challenge, although it has become a hobby of mine to sort of push back on some of their narratives. Um, wow, that's a really complex question. What is the greatest the greatest challenge? I'd say most of my like formal work isn't trying to contradict anyone's narrative. It's It has sort of a humanitarian slant. It's more man-on-the-street coverage. And I think that the biggest challenge right now is the U.S. and European media focus has kind of moved away from the issue. So it, it's there's no conspiracy here. It's just a matter of the world is in flames. We have coronavirus going on. There were mass protests in the U.S., it uh, looks like half of the world is looking at a global economic recession. So I think my biggest challenge right now is just trying to get media companies interested in still covering w- what is a very captivating and important story.
0: I, I agree 100%. That's part of the reason why I'm doing this, this, uh, this podcast as well. What would you say are some of the biggest areas of research that you're curious about? Or in another way of putting it, what are some of the things that you're researching the most right now? Uh, well right now due to lockdown in Colombia I'm I'm trapped in Bogota and I can't
1: I can't really go to a lot of these conflict zones. Most of most of my most of my time as a journalist in Latin America has been fieldwork. So now I find myself leading uh, reading a lot of reports, but it's difficult in Venezuela because the government stopped releasing official information like crime statistics, medical statistics, and all we really have to go by is what the figureheads are saying. Um so it's really difficult for me to get specific, real, reliable information on simple things. Like what is the homicide rate among women in Venezuela? It's not reported. Uh, you know, How many hospitals have power? Nobody knows. These are questions that the government is like actively squashing this information. And if I'm not there on the ground, it's difficult. It's a very opaque situation.
0: I wanted to ask you about that as well, because I know that at one point you actually were in Venezuela, right? I've been to Venezuela. Well, I've been
1: to the border regions of Venezuela a number of times. Back before 2019, when the political crisis was as bad as it is, I used to cross informally from Cucuta into San Antonio and San Cristobal uh, through the Trochas. Nobody cared at the time. Um, It was like a little bit unsafe, but no more unsafe than other parts of Latin America. But once the political crisis started, it became incredibly dangerous to be an undocumented gringo in, in Venezuela. And I had some problems with that later on in my cow.
0: Yeah, uh, I wanted to ask you about that because based on what I read, uh, there was a point in one of your travels to the country and in, in my cow where you were actually taken by a member of the Guardia Nacional of the National Guard, right?
1: Yeah, I was working on a story about gasoline smuggling on the border for Al Jazeera, and I was working with a Venezuelan journalist as well. We were both traveling together. We were trying to transverse the entire border from Cucuta to Macau, which we did successfully. But in Macau, uh my Venezuelan friend went to go talk to uh, immigration. Venezuelan National Guard was manning the immigration checkpoint. And so I sat on the sidewalk in what I thought was Colombia. I'm still not sure if it was or not. And I was detained and arrested by National Guard, um, as was my friend who came to try to help me. When they found our cameras and equipments, they decided that they were going to try to extort us. They, tra- they threatened to charge me with espionage and terrorism. Um, just for your listeners, I'm sure you're aware, but the terrorism laws in Venezuela are incredibly vague and incredibly broad. It's... So me literally having pictures of the border checkpoint was enough under their Venezuelan law for them to actively charge me with espionage and terrorism. Um, they use the same really broad laws to just sort of arbitrarily detain protesters. Um, it's kind of a long story. Maybe I can send you the link to that. I guess you're aware of it, but your listeners aren't. But basically, I was held by a Venezuelan guard, later interrogated by SEBIN, which is the intelligence arm of the Venezuelan state. Um... They initially asked me for ten thousand dollars to release me, and threatened to send both of us to Caracas, to which you know would be a really tough fate for a, a white American journalist, and threatened my friend, whom we'll call Jose Rafael, uh, with torture. Basically, they were a lot more aggressive with him because it's easier for them to disappear a Venezuelan citizen than it is for them to disappear an American citizen. Um, after a few hours, we talked them into letting Jose Rafael go back to Colombia, uh, presumably to collect the bribe to free us. And I was left to my own devices. I was held, I'm not sure exactly, but between like 12 and 18 hours, something like that, closer to 18, not quite a full day. But instead of trying to raise money for a bribe, Jose Rafael contacted his editors within two media organizations in Venezuela, the American consulate, Venezuelan um, contacts that he had within the government as well. And my my editors, he had my phone, so he contacted Al Jazeera and every editor he could find that I had worked with in the last six months. The result of which was after about five or six hours, uh, there were four international media companies that were prepared to publish the story that venezuela had kidnapped an american journalist which would have been uncomfortable for the venezuelan government Mm -hmm. um so i was released now my speculation on the issue is that jose rafael saved my life and in doing so ended ended up being exiled from venezuela i mean he's still on their books seven made it very clear when they were releasing me that they had information on jose rafael's family uh, his girlfriend at the time, his coworkers, and they suggested very strongly to me that if I were returned back to Venezuela, that his family would have problems. So it was kind of a sad story. At the end, Jose Rafael is still living in exile here in Colombia, although he's found new employment. Uh, he had to give up everything, and it was a really strange and sad experience. When I became one of my best friends here in Colombia, and for somebody who could have easily just walked away, to make such a big sacrifice for me it really says a lot about the character. And the bravery that a lot of Venezuelan journalists have—something I have incredible respect for—I mean, I can even here in Colombia, I can go out in the street and criticize the government without fear of much happening to me. But that's not the case for Venezuelan period uh, journalists. I almost said periodistas. Excuse me. Uh, they're quite literally—they're quite literally li- risking their lives in the streets every day. That's not an exaggeration at all. A number of them have been jailed for no reason. More have faced death threats. Yeah, it's a, its a sad situation.
0: It really is. um, i'm I'm happy that you were able to make it out of there, okay, because, as you mentioned before, as much of a shock as it may seem to uh, to our listeners, we're sort of numb to the experience. In fact, the uh, the Foro Penal, which is a human rights organization in Venezuela, put out a report. I don't know if you saw this, mm-hmm. Josh, but they put out a report with the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Center. Uh, not too long ago, I think the New York Times was the one to break the story. They had mentioned that during the period that was covered by the report that they put out, 724 enforced disappearances of political detainees were reported in Venezuela, 200 in 2018, and 524 last year. So the practice is very much commonplace.
1: It's very much commonplace. And the the worst part about that experience is that there was a point where they were, you know, trying to scare me into coming up with the money. And the way they did that was by describing uh, what Venezuelan political prison, prisoners face in the day-to-day challenges. Like, And they weren't lying, because I've interviewed some of these people. I, I interviewed, for example, a, a woman from Caracas after the 2017 protest that fled the country, because during the protests, which you're, you're certainly aware of, and maybe listeners aren't, there was a really strong state, brutal crackdown on protesters that led to a lot of deaths. Mm -hmm. And during this time, this woman, who was not at all involved in the protests, saw police attacking protesters, sometimes lethally, and basically let 12 people hide in her apartment overnight until things calmed down the next day when they could leave. Her neighbors reported to her, and she was informally accused of terrorism. Hey, imagine that. Um, she spent a hmm. month in a prison in Caracas the situations she described were abominable and she was detained arbitrarily her family was not notified there was never any charges filed finally after a month they came with the money to free her which uh, effectively was just a bribe and she immediately fled the country but she described cells shared with 20 prisoners who were sometimes hostile, she described serial torture, sexual abuse of the female inmates. They weren't exaggerating how bad those conditions are for political prisoners. We've seen two high-profile opposition members tortured to death in Venezuela in the last three years. And those are just the public ones we know about because they had a high profile. Who knows how many more of these people that are simply disappeared are dead? It's a dark thing to think about, but it's a daily reality within Venezuela
0: and it's a reality that the international community at large needs to be aware of, certainly to fight and counteract this disinformation campaign that is really tantamount to the tales of Narnia that are being put out by Greyzone and their allies.
1: Yes, it's true. Although, as a side note to Grayzone, I've noticed an interesting trend over the last two years since I started kind of following their work. And that's that. They have done this in a number of countries. They've done this in Nicaragua. They've done this in Venezuela. They've done this in Syria. They did this recently with China regarding the Uyghurs and the Hong Kong protests. And what I'm starting to see that really gives me a lot of hope is that you, all these people who actually live in these regions, or people who have studied these regions and understand what's going on across the board, they're all critics of gray zone. And I'm starting to see like a really broad consensus that these guys are just. Uh, grifters. I mean, they've been decredited as a source on Wikipedia, widely panned by a number of well-known journalists from all the regions I just mentioned. And most of the writers are unable to work for other media companies now because anyone who works for a serious newspaper, one, knows who they are, and two, knows their history. And I feel like they've lost a lot of clout that they obtained in 2018, 2019. And I view that as a very good thing and I think it's made them a bit more desperate.
0: Another silver lining to add to that also is Telesur, as you correctly described, is the propaganda arm of not just Venezuela, but also of Nicaragua, of Cuba, of Bolivia at one point. These outlets, I think, apart from the clout that they had at one point, are also um, severely lacking in financial resources. I believe, I read this story, correct me if I'm wrong, but Telesur is actually running out of resources to pay its staff members, so they're relying on young Cubans to write their stories.
1: Yeah, it's a story by Charles Davis. I know his work. he's He's a great, great, great journalist on Venezuela. He used to work for Telesur and was a chavista who has sort of changed his mind after seeing the results of the Bolivarian Revolution. And I can confirm that story because when I was working in Ecuador, um, for the protest there in October of 2019, I met a bunch of Telesur guys. Mostly they were internationals, uh, kind of young people who had taken the job as a gateway into journalism. And I developed uh, a lot of contacts there just from covering riots in the streets because it was, it was basically me and Telesur were the only people that were covering the story. And they had been telling me for months and asking me not to publish the story that they hadn't been paid in almost six months. So the story is absolutely true. Uh, and the only reason I didn't publish it is because I didn't want to expose my friends. They were worried about pushback from either losing their jobs or being added to some sort of blacklist by the Venezuelan government. But yeah, it's absolutely true. Um, yeah, I mean, also Ecuador and Bolivia both stopped paying. Originally, Telesur was created and owned by Ecuador, Venezuela, and Bolivia. Ecuador and Bolivia stopped paying. Stops paying for the day-to-day operations for the most part. Um, oh, I think it's also Paraguay,
0: Uruguay, Uruguay, Uruguay.
1: You're right. You're right. You're right. Um, Uruguay, Bolivia, and Ecuador have all kind of abandoned their financial responsibilities for the project, and it's resting solely on the square on the shoulders of Venezuela now who can't who can't support it.
0: Right, and so now that's why they have to rely on these Cuban students to churn out propaganda.
1: Right, which is wild. They're they're effectively exploiting workers as part of a socialist
0: revolution. It's a bit ironic, is it not? Oh, absolutely. I <laughs> couldn't agree more. Um, while that is a um, definitely more on the plus side, one of the negatives that I've noticed over the past year is the fact that Venezuela, despite everything that we've talked about, despite the fact that uh, Michelle Bachelet, the head of the UN's Human Rights Council herself, denounced many of the instances of torture, of arbitrary detention of detainees. That report came out last year. Venezuela still found itself a spot in the UN Human Rights Council. So that's definitely one of the uh, biggest setbacks, I think, in terms of stripping this dictatorship of its legitimacy. In your opinion, though, what do you think has been another obstacle or setback we could say in the last year when it comes to removing Nicolas Maduro, whether it be U.S. policy, tactics implemented by the opposition, what in your experience or just based on your own research do you think has been one of the biggest things that has set us back in general? I think there's there's two
1: questions there. I'd like to really briefly address the U.N. thing. The U.N. Human Rights Council has, has long been kind of a farce. And I think it's really important to differentiate the Human Rights Council at the UN, which is based on a rotating member basis who are recommended by the people who sit on the board. And those people who sit on that board have long been uh, countries with histories of human rights violations, and they want more allies. But that council doesn't really have much power. And when you talk about things like the the u n Refugee Council or the human rights councils that are that are they're they're more academic based they operate independently from that council that council doesn't have much power, so I don't view that as i mean it's embarrassing, and the council is a farce, but i don't view that as being a very decisive factor in what's going on. do you understand
0: sure yeah, absolutely you make a great point
1: um but regarding the biggest problem with the way the attempts to address the situation have failed, I think um, there's a lot of them. There's been a lot of disorganization among the opposition, some instances of clear corruption. There's been a lot of competition within the opposition to sort of outmaneuver each other, which are counterproductive. Um, I think, but the biggest, the biggest mistake that I saw everyone make was underestimating Maduro and the military forces Chavez, regardless of whatever you think of his policies or his politics, was a very charismatic and smart human being. And he stacked the military with loyalists, and not just loyalists that were loyal to Chavez, but loyalists that were loyal to the idea of the Bolivarian Revolution, which was supposed to make the world a much better place. I mean, if you listen to their rhetoric, it sounds very beautiful. So you have a military that is completely stacked with generations of loyalists. Furthermore, the other thing that Chavez did that was really smart is he got them involved in a lot of the corruption schemes? So whether that was, um, you know, selling official dollars abroad—that's a whole other story to get into—or illegal mining, or uh, drug production, or smuggling of gasoline, or soliciting bribes—you have a, you have a on the generals level in Venezuela, you have people that can't leave. Like if they leave, they're going to be criminals in other countries, right? They're allowed to go to maybe Cuba, and that's it. So they have an incredible incentive not to betray Maduro. And I think that Trump grossly, grossly misunderstood uh, how the base of support for Maduro within Venezuela is small, but it's extremely loyal and they have all the guns, right? I think that that was the biggest mistake from uh, a geopolitical calculation that was just completely Mm squandered by the Trump administration.
0: Yeah, and I think um... Basically, that that's really what ended up happening in terms of some of the setbacks in the Trump administration's policy toward Venezuela. It's really become something of a Pandora's box, we can say, because we have no idea what's going to happen. And it leads to this level of unpredictability that has already reached record highs in Venezuela and throughout the Venezuelan diaspora, waiting on sort of the next Set of orders from the wide camp, because if you'll remember all of us we all did our due diligence when we were asked to march, we marched when we were asked to share um, certain bits of information we did all of it so there's sort of like this um, feeling of resentment you could say among Venezuelans who are sort of asking you know mm-hmm. why are we in this state of inertia when we put in really maximum pressure
1: yeah there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of, it's a complex, it's a really complex issue. There's a lot of people to blame, I think is the best way to put it. The, there's room for a lot of interpretation, I guess.
0: In your estimation, I know you're a journalist, and so I don't want to put that much uh, pressure on you. But really looking out into the next, I don't know. Well, I don't want to look too far in the future because we're fighting a global t- pandemic right now that really takes <laughs> the, the scales for everybody. So that's a domino effect in and of itself, but limiting the peripheries and just focusing on Venezuela, what do you think is the outlook with so many things paralyzed um, directly as a result of the pandemic, but also because we're sort of at a political impasse, what prospects do you see in the future for the uh, the internal struggle as a whole? I always say that it's it's
1: kind of a waste of time to try to predict what's going to happen in Venezuela. Venezuela is one of the most unpredictable places I've ever tried to learn about in my life. And in some ways that's a beautiful thing. So uh, I wanna preface this by saying I could be completely wrong. Many other people much smarter than me have been many times over the last three years and before. But I think that what's going on in Venezuela right now is, is massive collapse. Uh, gasoline shortages, light shortages, uh, power shortages, people that don't have running water in the midst of a pandemic. And furthermore, you have a number of armed actors that that go beyond just the government. I mean, we're talking about groups that were originally Colombian rebels who started to set up camps there in the nineties who have since expanded like ELN and the FARC dissident groups who didn't sign on to the peace agreement in Colombia. You have local gangs, you have uh, factions, that control various parts of the legal economies in the country. And I don't know much about predictions on, on a geopolitical level, but I do know that when you have millions of armed people that are all criminals with very little loyalty towards one another, each other, that's a very volatile situation. So if I had to make a prediction, if someone forced me, I would say that at some point there's going to be armed conflict within Venezuela. And... That's a sad thing. I hope that a political solution can be found before that happens,
0: yeah. I really hope that we can try to avoid as much as possible any any further any further oppression, repression, and bloodshed because Lord knows that uh, we've had more than our fair share. Um, so I just have a couple of questions left, Josh. Number one, as a uh, sort of as a positive moving forward for our listeners, what are some steps that the average Joe could take? to learn a little bit more about Venezuela and for those who are, who want to learn more and actively sort of, I guess, let people know when something or someone is being misrepresented to try and resist this overwhelming disinformation campaign?
1: I would say the easiest and most accurate way to avoid disinformation on Venezuela is try to find primary sources try to find journalists that are actually there. And there are a lot of Venezuelan and Colombian journalists that write in both English and Spanish. They would be good places to start. Um, I would also suggest avoiding anything that is just rewriting uh, Venezuelan government press releases. Um, there are a number of organizations that do that. Telesur, as we talked about earlier, being one of them. Um, Yeah, primary sources is, is really the best way because most of the arguments that I see are people who have read a few disinformation articles, and they're easy to identify because they always have the same talking points. And it's a complex issue, and there's plenty of criticism to be had of U.S. foreign policy. I've written a lot of it. And I think just assuming that it's not a black and white sort of cartoon cutout, that there's a lot more to the story, that there are... When you talk about the opposition in Venezuela, you're talking about a huge swath of ideological beliefs from left to right. I mean, you have an anarchist group operating within Venezuela right now that doesn't support Madero. So, I mean, that, that, would, that would be someone who would probably consi- be considered a socialist or a communist by American standards, right? So, and and the um, Charles, the guy that I mentioned earlier, who writes for the Daily Beast now and various other articles, he used to write for Telesur. Uh, he's another great example of a real far leftist who is trying to get the, the truth out about what's going on in Venezuela. Um, I would just say that the biggest thing is just try to get to your information from primary sources and from somebody who's not speaking from an ideological viewpoint. Because um, some journalism has a really bad habit of forcing the narrative to fit their ideology rather than just trying to tell the story, which I think is a problem around the entire world and important to avoid in all situations.
0: Yes. I wholeheartedly agree. It's all about nuance at the end of the day. And with that, I'm actually going to go ahead and recommend my listeners also follow you because that's one of the reasons I sought you out in the first place, right? It's all about nuance and I want people to know maybe different perspectives on what's going on in Venezuela, but also learn from people who have had those interactions and can tell you from a verifiable standpoint, the reality of the situation without inserting their own, uh, Bias, let's say.
1: And yeah, and you mentioned that you had Germania on the show. I would recommend her as a source as well. She's not currently in Venezuela, but her mother has a very long and a bit polemic history within Venezuela. But certainly that would be another resource to check out in English language.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We had a great conversation about um, all the topics that we talked about for the most part. So, yeah, absolutely. I can wholeheartedly endorse her as well, Hermania Rodriguez. Uh, in your case, Josh, where can our listeners find you if they want to learn more about your story and uh, read a bit more about some of the topics that we went over today? Um,
1: the website is uh Invisible Walls. That has links to my Twitter feed and um, not all of my published work, but a considerable amount of it, as well as links to the blog. Sometimes there are stories that I just can't get into media. And so those end up on my blog. And sometimes they end up being sort of the most personal and I think the most powerful stories, even though they don't reach as many people. But those that's a pretty easy way to find me. And you can find all my accounts from there.
0: Perfect. That's right, listeners. If you want to support Josh's work and read up on more stories like the ones you've heard today in this episode, you can follow him on Twitter. Uh, That would be at Joshua Collins, right? Or am I wrong?
1: It's at InvisiblesMuros because Muros Invisibles was taken.
0: Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, completely butchered that one, yeah. The the easiest way is just my website, Muros Invisibles. Okay, perfect. Yeah, you heard the man. Follow his website, MurosInvisibles.com. Joshua, thank you so much again for your time.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation, Rafael. Thank you for having me.
0: (music) Thanks again for tuning in to the very first episode of the State of Venezuela podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming platform you use. I'd also be grateful if you could leave a review and maybe share it with someone who you think might be interested in learning more about Venezuela. And finally, if you have any thoughts on today's episode or topics you'd like me to cover in the future, shoot me an email at stateofvenezuela at gmail.com. Thanks again, I'll see you all in the next one.